From the New York Public Library, you're listening to Library Talks. I'm Aiden Flax-Clark. So some of you may have missed the announcement last week that we changed the name of this podcast, and you might have been a little confused when I just said, you're listening to Library Talks. But don't be confused. You are, in fact, listening to Library Talks, formerly known as the New York Public Library Podcast. It's a way better name, right? We also changed the logo, and much more importantly, the day that the show comes out. It's gone from Tuesday to Sunday. But same great content, same great guests from the New York Public Library, just a different look and feel. On today's show, author Robert Fiesler and his book, Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. Tinderbox tells a pivotal story in the history of the gay rights movement, but it's one that's been buried for decades. It's of an arson that happened in 1973 in New Orleans at a gay bar called the Upstairs Lounge, in which 31 men and one woman were killed. It was the single biggest mass murder of gay people until the shooting at the Pulse nightclub in 2016. Why it was buried, how it was buried, and what happened was the subject of Robert's conversation, which he had with Eric Marcus. Eric Marcus is the host of the Making Gay History podcast and an author of the book by the same name. Both of them rely on an incredible and extensive archive of oral histories that Eric recorded for years with figures from all over the gay rights movement, both before Stonewall and after. Eric actually donated that archive to the library, and we're really proud to house it. Eric's podcast is fantastic. He's a really wonderful, seasoned interviewer, and all of his skills are in evidence here in this conversation with Robert Fiesler. Um, so let's get right to it. Sure. Um, when did you first learn about the New Orleans fire? Because I, I hadn't heard of it until it started being written about in relation to the Pulse uh, massacre. I learned about it in 2013, right around the time of the 40th anniversary of the fire. I was a student at the Columbia Journalism School, and I had written a sample chapter for another book about, um, essentially it was a, about the burning of a Catholic church in my hometown by the KKK. So it was a, a visceral fire scene that was going to be part of a, um, it was a sample chapter that was going to be part of a proposal for another book. And um, through the grapevine, Nicholas Lemon, who was a, then the dean of the Columbia Journalism School, now dean, dean Emeritus, he asked, had I ever heard of the upstairs lounge fire? And I said, no. And, he, he, and I said, what is it? I was, uh, and he said, it's, it's this deadly fire at a second story gay bar in 1973 New Orleans that claimed 32 lives. And I was, he goes, have you heard of it? And I, I said, no, I was absolutely shocked. I'd never heard of it before. Um, and I tried to ask him more about it. And he, he actually couldn't tell me. Beyond the, beyond the basic facts, beyond the basic turns and beats of the story, what it was all about. Um, and so it, it, that served as a, a clue to me because Professor Lemon is a guy that can remember, his grasp of facts is incredible. He can remember what he ate for dinner at a, on a certain day a decade ago, et cetera. He could remember the, the, color of the, um, the color of his mentor's eyes back in the, back, back in the day. It was, his grasp of details is amazing. So I began to sense if, Perhaps if Nicholas Lemon couldn't remember huge details about the upstairs lounge fire, that perhaps more people in New Orleans um, wouldn't know. So I moved down there. Uh, right. I'm going to interrupt you. I have sure. questions. Just as an aside, because I don't come from a neighborhood where the KKK burnt down any churches, mm -hmm. um, where did you, this is your hometown, you said, where this happened? Yeah, so I grew up in Naperville, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, about 35 miles southwest of Chicago. Um, and in the 1920s, during the second rise of the Klan, there was a, the largest church in town and the largest building in town um, 
was a Catholic church that had been assembled by townsfolk um, from a local quarry. And um, following uh, what, what then was, it, this is in 1924, it was one of the largest um, ever rallies of the, of the second clan. Um, they estimated about 40,000 people showed up. It was this large scale initiation at a, at a neighboring town. Um, individuals at this clan rally, at this initiation, uh, decided that they'd had it with the largest building in Naperville being this Catholic church. And so it was set, it was doused and set ablaze. Wow, it wasn't even Jewish. Mm -mm. No. I say that as a Jew. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm working on a Holocaust project, so that's what comes to mind. Um, it's just, it's so stunning to learn the history of our country and to discover that there were all kinds of horrible things that happened that, that we don't, it wasn't part of my education at PS99 or Russell Sage. Oh, it wasn't Queens. part of my education either, even growing up there. So you didn't know about the, the, the church burning? No, I, and I was fascinated about that because I'm, I love alternative histories. I love uh, stories that color in the past, even in this instance, my past, trying to understand, I was a closeted gay kid growing up in a Chicago suburb, trying to understand why this town and this city would be so intolerant of homosexuals. Um, as I was growing up in the 1990s, to the point where I, I didn't know, I, I, there were no models for gay life or lesbian life. I, I knew no adult, essentially, any individuals of homosexual, of sexual difference. So that was nothing compared to what they did to the Catholics. No. No, so, so Naperville was not the most um, open and embracing place. In the, the mid-90s, no. When, when I was growing up in the 90s, um, there, no, it was a, it was really an incubator of social conservatism. So they're about 10 miles away from the ivory tower of Wheaton College, which is where, uh, which was, you know, where a lot of the Christian coalition and, and a lot of the so-called Christian right um, did a lot of its organizing. So, um, and even to this day, that's a school where if you go to college there, um, you sign, you take a pledge to say that you are not going to have premarital sex or you're not going to do anything people do in college, which is drink, do drugs, any of those things. Um, so the influence on that, just being 10 miles away, was, was huge on my town. Wow, so how did you wind up writing about anything gay-related? I mean, when you went to, so I know that you went to the Journalism School of Columbia. Were you out by the time you got there? Yeah, I came out um, in 2003 in my junior year at the University of Michigan. Um, so I, I went to a Big Ten school. I was closeted and miserable for about three years until eventually I went to a one of the last cool things they do at the University of Michigan, there's this, there's this program called NELP, the New England Literature Program, which is an intentional learning community. During the spring term, you go to a writer's camp in Maine on a lake and you read about Thoreau and Emerson and all sorts of stuff and you, you all keep a journal and there's a lot of self-reflection. So people, uh, you, you also abstain from alcohol and drug use during this time and a lot of, there's a lot of personal realizations that people come to in this program. So my realization was I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you express that there? I uh, got a boyfriend. <laughs> That's quick. Yeah, that yeah. was great. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> so by the time you got to Columbia, this was not a, a verboten subject. So writing about something gay. Mm, no, I, I mean, I'd, I, I was always, I was looking for a topic to write about gay rights for a, a span of time by the time I'd got to the Columbia Journalism School, but I hadn't found the right story that I thought explored enough gray space and explored an era of LGBT rights that I perhaps didn't know a lot about. I wanted to learn in the process of writing the story. 
So why, uh, why write a book? I and mean, this is, this is you would, most people in graduate school don't leave graduate school and write a book. Yeah. But you did. You're scaring me. Yeah. Why, why am I scaring you? <laughs> um, it's what I wanted to do. I, I went to the Columbia Journalism School because I'd listened to an NPR story um, about a professor there named Samuel Friedman who had a famous class called the Book Writing Seminar where journalism students were crafting successful good, uh, book proposals that were going to contract and then people were writing books. Um, I thought that the, the ultimate, in, in some sense, the ultimate in, in a lot of journalistic storytelling is a book length reported account. So that was my dream and I wanted to do it. And how did you settle on, 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 this, on the subject of, of, of the fire? Was that the, that was the story? Was the interaction with Professor uh, Nicholas Lemon and it's a bit more complex than that, but it ended up resulting in uh, this Professor Lemon didn't know, couldn't tell me a ton about this event. I went down to New, I moved, I went down to New Orleans. So this is before you had a contract, you went down to New Orleans. Yeah, essentially, I did it all. I was, I became obsessed. I heard about this story. It seemed no one like, would know from reading that book that you were obsessed with this subject. And I say it teasingly, because having been obsessed with, with subjects myself, it's so thoroughly explored, you'd have to be passionate about the subject to dig the way you sure. did in I mean, this I'm book. sure it's happened to you too. You get bitten and then you're consumed. And you totally have... crazy consumed and you can't let it go until you're done. Absolutely. And even when you're done, you're, well, I, I went back to my book 10 years later and redid it because I couldn't let it go. Oh my gosh. It was, that was, yeah. So, so I, I think 10 years that. from now you I might. I understand that. Yeah, no, there, I'm still discovering things about the upstairs lounge yeah. that I, some of them I wish I included. Some of them I'm like, no, I had to at some point draw to, the line. Yeah. So, so you moved to New Orleans. You were finished with graduate school? Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, you moved with the goal of what? I moved with the goal of I had, um, at that stage, there was an editor that was interested in, in, an, in a possibly an upstairs lounge story with me doing it. There was uh, several, uh, there was this inkling that there was this larger story. I knew that there was this professor at the journalism school who might be a good informational resource who could perhaps par parlay me to a few sources. And then just, I was hoping by just perhaps a stroke of, a stroke of luck or something, I would be able to stumble um, upon something significant in this, in this, in this tale, but fall down a rabbit's hole where, um, where this, I could show how the story of this fire was perhaps, um, compelling on its own right, and then also historically significant. What I, what I am so impressed by with what you did is that you took this event and built a much larger story around it. You set it in context. You use your characters in a very narrative way, almost a novelistic way. Did you go into the book thinking, I'm going to write? Um, yes, yeah. that's what I do. I, write, I, I like narrative literary nonfiction that way, um, where I knew, I, I had a sense um, when I learned about this story that for years and years, the, essentially any of the, the, anything that having to do with the backstories of the origins of the upstairs lounge fires, uh, victims or survivors, um, had been brushed under the rug, or in many instances, those victims and survivors had been told their stories were not important. Um, and something in uh, I, my reportorial Spidey sense was telling me, um, no, these were actually, I bet if I did some digging, these are fascinating stories um, that need to be told in a very large way. What did your family say when you said, I'm moving to New Orleans to dig into this story that is on the, on the surface, 
as a parent, probably, I can imagine saying, you know, it's a big risk. Um, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a gay story. It's a long time ago. No one really cares about it. Why, right. why would you invest this time and take the risk, the professional risk, also writing on something gay? Sure. Um, my mom was worried about how I was going to make money, like what my career, what my career path is going to be. Is this going to really turn into something? Um, my dad was intrigued because he likes history and alternative histories by the story, and he likes to think that I'm some sort of gay rebel Howard Zinn in his own mind or something like that. Where he, um, and in so a sense, he was proud that I was going down there. They were both fearful because I, literally, I only knew two people in New Orleans. I had two friends um, that were uh, that had an empty bed and, and a sunroom. Um, that I was welcome to stay in for an extended period of time. And so when I went down there, my parents were afraid because I didn't know anyone. And there's that whole phenomenon of not, when you move to a city, it's very lonely. It's actually desperately lonely. Also, um, they knew that I was, uh, in a sense, leaving behind for a span of months, um, my fiance in Brooklyn and our beloved dog, our Cairn Terrier, who was never gonna forgive me for being away. So they knew, um, I was leaving behind a lot of things that gave me joy and comfort and perhaps not for, with uncertain results. So you get to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. You're in this room in a friend's house. Yeah. How do you go about finding your characters? Yeah. If we can call them characters, finding sure. the people who, who populate your book. So you sit in this room, in this sunroom, where there's like pink magnolia flowers around, and you can imagine me sitting there, and you get there finally, and you realize the gravity of this story, and that you're a first-time book writer, and you freak out. Um, and you real you and wonder... What, what does that look like? <laughs> it just looks like internalized panic. You don't know what, what to do. Um, so I went and I researched, I, I tried to look for... Um, essentially articles about the upstairs lounge fire at first, and I tried to find people who I thought could be um, connectors to larger networks within the city. Um, and I saw the name Frank Perez, uh, who was a, a renowned gay, uh, gay historian and LGBT tour guide. Um, and I saw his picture and that he had a book out about the most famous gay bar, which is called Cafe Lafitte in Exile in New Orleans. And I reached out to him, and it was a pompous email. I quoted Shakespeare or something like that. And um, he responded right away and said, just come meet me at Lafitte's. I, I said, oh, is this a business meeting? He goes, no, I'm a bar fly. I'm like, OK. <laughs> and um, Frank ended up being uh, really the first um, great ally of the book, where uh, from that first meeting in Lafitte's, I was able to understand that Frank was essentially the mayor of the French Quarter, which is the the main tourist district, the, the oldest district in New Orleans, who uh, he can't walk down the street without him being stopped by four different people. Who And he knew many of the sources, uh, many of the survivors, in essence, um, and many of the family members of the victims who'd passed away. And he was incredibly generous with just simply passing on that information to me. And that became my first major break, which was probably within two days of being in town. So did the panic ease a little bit? Oh, of course. New Orleans has a wonderful tradition of welcoming in the stranger. And I felt like I was the stranger that got welcomed into this, all of its various underworlds. What were your early impressions of that underworld or the underworlds that you found there? Or what, um, what, were, thought, what were they actually? Yeah, um, okay. Well, New Orleans, um, it's almost an indescribable place. Um, You're very good at describing. I, I know that from your book. 
It's a place um, that has an altogether different relationship to the vices as they relate to life. Alcohol, drugs, stripping, gambling, prostitution, anything having to do with any different kind of sexual difference. Back in the 70s, it was it, you were a radical if you were gay, but now it's um, any sort of slice of the gay community. So the leather daddies and then the leather pups. Um, the a leather pup? I've never heard oh, that. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> um, it, it's all sorts of, and I, I, I immediately, because I was, uh, you know, I was engaged and I was down, I immediately just felt like a complete prude in this environment. I'm this northern Yankee that's just not been um, indoctrinated into any of these things. Yeah, Naperville is not known for, no, I've been to Naperville. No, it's not for its party yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah. For its, no, um, absolutely not. So, um, I was essentially initially shocked by it and then and completely delighted eventually. I discovered a cocktail called the Sazerac, which is, a, do you know about the Sazerac? It's a cocktail that is rye whis whiskey with an absinthe wash in it. I highly recommend it. Um, I'm only allowed a single beer at bar, uh, bar mitzvahs and brisses, according to my doctor. Yeah. So no, I've never had that. Yeah. I, early on, I developed this theory. It sounds very cliche, but I think it's true. At least it was true for me, I, that I would never be able to write about New Orleans unless if I got incredibly drunk in it for an extended period of time. And you did. I did. And I how succeeded. Did, how long did it take? Was this an evening or a week? No, this is about the first three months or so. So it would be like, <laughs> it, it would be like an evening bender and then daytime would be devoted to all the fun stuff that doesn't have to do with actually writing a book, but reporting, which is like, I love reporting so much. So making contact with sources, all of the, uh, making contact with experts and forming all the collegial alliances that you need to, to make, reading anything that's ever been written about the upstairs lounge, seeing any documentary that's ever been made, that whole process of discovery. And you do that during the day and then drink in the evening. Absolutely. Uh-huh. How old are you? <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying, you can't do that after a certain age, so this is the perfect time to do it. No, I mean, I had, I'd never been to New Orleans before. I was like a little, but I, you know, I was a, a closeted queer kid that loved Dan Rice and every other cliche about New Orleans. I don't know why, but nothing had pulled me there in my life, and so I, f I feel like I had to have, this was an opportunity in my life for New Orleans to happen to me. It sounds like there's another book here. Oh, gosh. On New Orleans. I don't know, perhaps. I tried to make New Orleans a very large character in, in Tinderbox. Right, I'm just um, thinking of you in the, in the story as a character as opposed to the reporter. Oh, me as a hapless first-time writer trying to figure out how to write about a very serious historical event yeah. while partying my brains out. Yeah. Is this okay that I'm talking about this? <laughs> this wasn't what you expected to talk about. No, no, it's Sorry. fine. I like this. Um, what were the challenges of tracking people down? Um, so I, when I did my book, I had a phone and you could write letters. This was 1988. You had some extra tools, but that doesn't mean even if you find people that they'll talk to you. Mm -hmm. So what, what were the reactions you got from people when, when you contacted them? Um, extremely varied. So some would um, quite literally slam the door in your face. Their, uh, their experience at the fire was so traumatic um, that being asked to revisit it at all was, was in essence going to cause them to relive the worst thing that ever happened to them. Um, and so they weren't ready or will it, weren't, weren't willing to do that. Um, some, uh, for example, upstairs lounge survivor Ricky Everett, for him in his case, uh, talking about the fire uh, again and again is, is part of his healing process. So I was immediately embraced by him. Uh, 
in terms of being will, uh, willing to talk about it. For some of the family members of the victims, that's true as well, um, especially for some of the children um, of the upstairs lounge victims whose fathers were either closeted or they had been closeted when they married their mothers and then divorced, as was common in the 70s. In other instances, it was a real, uh, like about a, a three-year text message or email dance where they weren't sure, they, they, they were human hearts in conflict with themselves, to reference Faulkner, meaning they wanted the desire, they had the, the desire to share, but um, the aversion to being hurt by sharing. Uh, and so many of them uh, weren't sure about whether or not they wanted to talk to me. And then um, those that had been on the fence um, decided uh, um, after the Pulse nightclub shooting, seemingly, um, se several individuals who had been almost certain that they weren't going to speak to me um, called with urgency the next day after the Pulse nightclub shooting. Why, what did they say? And were they aware that that was the they connection? They were aware that was the connection and that people, uh, individuals were beginning to associate um, the tragedy of the upstairs lounge uh, with the slaughter um, at Pulse in Orlando. And uh, I think these individuals, um, these upstairs lounge survivors, sensed that um, other individuals were hurting and they thought that sharing their story, much as it might hurt themselves, uh, might do some kind of a greater good. Yeah, I wonder what it must have been like for them to read, because almost every early article anyway said, uh, reference Pulse, how many people were killed. It was the biggest massacre since the uh, New Orleans fire in 73, which right. is the context in which I read it. Mm -hmm. Right, the record that was never meant to be broken. It was the, uh, the upstairs lounge fire was the largest gay mass murder for 43 years until Pulse. Right, right. Were there people who you contacted who were still closeted? Um, some were. Yeah. And did you literally go to people's doors sometimes to track them down? Sure. Um, I would doorstop them, meaning sometimes you find, you, individuals in New Orleans, if they find a great place in the French Quarter, so oftentimes never give up that location just because it's a fantastic Creole cottage and you get it, when, especially when you're inside it. It's just a wonderful home. So oftentimes scanning a police report from 1973, individuals who gave wit witness statements will have a certain address. You can just very easily... They're still there. Yeah, you can check oh, and like find them there. it's like apartments in mm -hmm. New York. Yeah. Yeah. And besides that, I wrote... I did what you did. I wrote a lot of letters. One, the, the thing that nobody expects to get these days is a handwritten letter. I, I was an adjunct uh, at Columbia this past year working with two students on their master's projects, and I said, call people or write to them, because no one's used to, to getting a phone call. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and they'll pick up the phone because the oh, phone certainly. never rings, and and it's a, it's odd that it's because that it's such a useful tool now to use the the old-fashioned. That's tools. the differentiator. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Yeah. So, what would you say in a letter to somebody? What kinds of things did you write? I would say who I was. I would introduce myself, say the purpose of the project, um, and I would say how I found them. Usually, that that dispels any sort of nerves. Right. Where you, you describe just straight flat out. Either it's, I, you know, I saw you in the police report, or I looked you up on Google White Pages, or something like that. Um, and then you, you say specifically what you're looking what, what to get, versus that I, you know, I would love to hear about your experiences. If you have the time to speak about this, it would be you know, a great honor. And they responded, sometimes. They would all, almost always respond, if only sometimes just to say no. Uh -huh. Um, sometimes emphatically, 
emphatically no. Mm -hmm. And some of those people you wound up interviewing in the end. Correct. Yeah. What was the experience like for you listening to these stories, some of which were, were clearly very painful for people to share? Mm -hmm. um, as you were bearing witness, and I imagine in some cases, to stories that people had not shared before. Sure. Um, well, it's a large, the, the thing you're supposed to say is the true thing, which is it's an honor to hear these stories. Um, and that there's a grave responsibility that comes with being entrusted with them. Um, but also, um, you know, I'm a human being and I'm also a queer person. And so hearing these stories, not in my professional hat that I'm wearing, but just as a person sitting there in the room um, is, is incredibly heartbreaking. Um, in some senses traumatic in its own right when you learn what these individuals have gone through. Um, and there's a process of grieving you go through for them for what they had to live through and how they had, how they had to face their day-to-day -day lives. I remember interviewing Damien Martin. It was, uh, he's one of the founders of the Hetrick Martin Institute of the Protection of Lesbian and Gay Youth. Um, Emery, his partner, had died and Damien was ill. And I remember a point in the interview, this is 30, over 30 years, oh, 30 years ago. Um, he was the age I am now. And it was a question I was afraid to ask it because we were into painful territory and I thought, I won't get a chance to ask this question again. Yeah. And I knew he would likely wind up crying and I would likely wind up crying too. Mm -hmm. I thought, I have to ask. Yeah. And I wonder if you had moments like that. Yes, where I know that I'm gonna press the button that breaks them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oftentimes, and I would have to do it because I'm writing a work of history, not a work of activism. And in some senses, they're the last living person who can give a certain amount of testimony. So yeah, there, I, I had to ask, um, it was the son of an upstairs lounge victim. His name is John Golding Jr. and his father was named John Golding. His father was closeted and he would go visit the upstairs lounge on Sundays. It was his favorite gay bar, but he was still, John was still married to Jane, who was John Golding Jr.'s mother. Um, and John Golding was killed in the upstairs lounge fire. So I had to ask him, um, I said, it, 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 I knew it was just going to be the basic question that broke him, but I said, um, what do you remember being 11 years old that night? Oh God, and he yeah. goes, he swear, he goes, I, I, I'm not going to curse now, but he says, F. Like mm -hmm. he goes, it was really loud on the phone. He screams, F. He's, he, and then he just starts crying. He just starts bawling, and I, you just have to kind of sit there um, and take in the experience of understanding that this is, it, it's clearly, this is something that still hurts him every day. The memory of losing his father, the memory at 11 years old of trying to understand that his dad had a void in his life that had to deal with homosexuality, even though he was still sleeping in the same bed with his mother, and of everything else that happened to them in terms of financial freefall and whatnot um, in the years that followed. Did he know that his father was gay before you spoke with him? He, he did. He'd pieced it together. Over, over a span of time, he'd pieced it together. When it became clear uh, in, 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 his, in his teenage years, the nature of the bar that his father had died in, that the upstairs lounge was a bar that had served homosexual clientele, eventually that, that led to him asking his mother the question about whether his dad um, preferred the company of men. That must have been some conversation. Is his mother still alive? No, she passed away. So how old is he? So he was 11 in 1973, so he's going to be in his 50s. Yeah. I imagine he's, 
he did plenty of digging of his own over time, or not? Not really, enough to discover his father and, and to understand him, but nothing further than that. And that's the case with a lot of the children of the, of the upstairs lounge victims, where not a lot of them became amateur sleuths and historians. They wanted just enough information to, to in essence, to serve them, to allow them to continue to engage on a happy life, to allow them to grieve and then to move on. Did you hear from him, from John? Yeah. What did he think of the book? Um, he hasn't said yet. I still owe him an author's copy, actually. So now that I said this, this like is accountability for me that I need to send it, that I need to mail it to him. But I have heard back from several of the victims of the, uh, the survivors of the upstairs lounge fire. Um, I mean, it, it's very emotional for them to read. I won't say that they enjoy it, but I, uh, they thanked me. I would think because it gives value to their experience. It gives voice to something that no one cared about um, at the time. Mm. Um, were there other people you interviewed, like John, who were deeply affected in the same way by your questions? Because it, it, clearly you struck a nerve when you asked that question <laughs> mm -hmm. with him. Were there other people? Were there moments like that? Yeah. So upstairs lounge survivor Ricky Everett was the guy that, um, he's an individual who telling the story about the upstairs lounge as part of his healing process. He had been, um, he was inside the bar in the second room when the fire began. Um, so he recalls seeing a faint orange glow when the front door opened and then the fireball shot across the room and consumed some of the people singing that were singing show tunes around the grand piano. He was in the second room watching as this happened, and then he saw some of the people run in from the first room and then kind of run out. Um, Ricky, is, it's, he, he has an incredible grasp of the details of that night. Um, his account of the fire um, almost exactly matches his police report from 1973. That actually, nice. that never happens. But what was fun, but his memory started to blur on a fact that I thought was very fascinating, which is that um, he had been, at the time of the upstairs lounge fire, living with his best friend, this guy named Henry Kubicki, who had been an upstairs lounge patron, but was working on the night of the fire. And after the upstairs lounge fire, um, Ricky Everett packed up all of his belongings in, the, in their apartment and moved out and never spoke to his best friend. Henry Kubicki, um, for years, if not decades. In essence, because Henry had not experienced the fire and the trauma of reliving and have to, having to rehash and retell the story to someone else was too much for him. But so I was um, interviewing Ricky Everett, and he has a sh he's a very polished interviewer now because he gives, a, he gives a great interview, so he, he has a shtick. And um, I knew that when I asked him about Henry, I would break him. I said, but Ricky, you moved out of you know, your best friend's house and never spoke to him again. Um, and that's where he broke down a bit. I was talking about, yes, I, you know, I was almost, uh, you could, I, I was almost like a zombie emotionally. You could point me any direction and I would go and I just couldn't bear the trauma. I couldn't talk about the fire without breaking down crying. So he chose to, it in essence, the fire severed his, their dearest friendship. Um, just because uh, two close friends, though they were both gay, um, couldn't connect on that level, um, following the horror of what had occurred. Did they ever reconcile their, their friendship? 
Not, not completely, no. And that's fascinating to me, though, too. They, they live in separate cities, though, no. So Ricky lives in Dallas, and Henry lives. Uh, Henry was a, a post-Katrina refugee that ended up moving out to Los Angeles. They're in some contact, but not, not anywhere near the degree that they, where they had been best friends prior to the fire. One of the things you do so well in this book is give a sense of the time, of the era, mm. um, which is so different from our own. And I wonder what if you can give a sense for us, how different was 1973 from 2018? Oh, almost unimaginably different. So you would have to, we'd have to step away from a lot of convenient, comfortable attitudes we have now. So present day context of society, the majority of people around us um, believe homosexuality is morally acceptable, think it should be legal, um, are in favor of gay marriage and would encourage two same-sex parents adopting a child. So um, to enter into the context of 73, you'd have to not just flip that scale of homosexual tolerance, but you'd have to probably flip the scale and then break it. Um, there, the majority of American society, when, when they would poll it, seven out of 10 Americans um, called homosexuality always wrong. The idea that it was illegal was uh, considered a good thing. It was a way of uh, it was a way of curtailing all the terrible vices of our society that were deemed to be rotting the foundations of this great land. Um, gay marriage was not something taken seriously in a in, in an ordinary conversation, unless if you were considered to be really mentally ill. Um, it, it, the only same-sex marriages that existed in New Orleans were called holy unions that were performed by this gay-friendly Christian denomination called the Metropolitan Community Church. Um, and those were treated by the average New Orleanian as something like make-believe. Um, those were spiritual congregations not recognized by any legal entity. And then um, the idea of, of homosexuals adopting children was just anathema. So I imagine for some of the men who went to the bar, they were at risk of losing their children if they were discovered. Sure, certainly, they were at risk of losing their families and a great many things. Their jobs, um, in New Orleans, there were local ordinances that had been passed that uh, allowed you to evict someone quite easily from an apartment uh, if you deemed that they were a sexual deviate. And additionally, you could lose your home uh, if, it was if it was deemed that uh, gay activity was occurring there. It could be declared a house of ill repute um, and then potentially repossessed by the state. That's extraordinary. So did that have bearing on, um, on how the men who survived the fire dealt with what happened afterwards? I imagine many of them couldn't, couldn't say where they'd been or what they had right. been through. Many of them were closeted before the fire. So they existed also in New Orleans had a unique idiosyncratic Creole culture that had handled the phenomenon of sexual difference very differently um, than the rest how, of the country. How so was that? Um, for decades, if not you know, several centuries, you could participate um, in whatever sexual behavior you wanted, in so much as you never you never named it and declared it. It was considered among the unsayable things. Um, so it got shunted into a corner or a part of the underworld, in other words. So any vice could occur in New Orleans. Prostitution, dancing when that was a vice, jazz when that was a vice, and the phenomenon of gentlemen who prefer gentlemen and ladies who prefer ladies and gentlemen who prefer ladies and gentlemen and all that. In so much that it ne you never spoke the dreaded word that started with H. And 
didn't end in etero. Um, the word gay, obviously, was not something that had been accepted back there at all. But so there was this, um, there was a longstanding tradition of eligible bachelors or millionaire bachelors, because it was a class society, so sometimes it made it better if you were declared yourself a, a millionaire bachelor, or two longtime spinsters who were two females that had been living in a home together, or two longtime companions. Um, in New Orleans, there was a phenomenon called the uptown marriage, which was well understood, which was um, two gay men sexually and romantically involved with each other who have wives, who are oftentimes best friends, and have children who oftentimes are playing with each other um, on a regular basis, and they'll spend weekends and take vacations together. And that's actually a phenomenon that, that still exists in New Orleans to this day. Not stated, though. Not stated ever. Mm. Um, to state it, to name it, was in essence to provoke violent reprisals from the authorities and from the police, who would then get all uppity about this licentiousness. However, right, so long as, so long as one kept this swept under the rug or, or quote unquote discreet, um, it was permitted to exist in New Orleans to such a degree that um, although by 1973, pockets of gay liberation had sprung up in most many, if not most, uh, major US cities by that point. Um, it had never taken root in New Orleans um, because in essence, New Orleans semi-closeted tradition allowed the closet's greatest defense. You could, you could be a successful businessman in public and engage in anything you wanted to sexually in private. And I imagine that the movement was very threatening to the- oh, Of course. You know, right after the fire, the movement was called in. Um, mm. Troy Perry, Morris Kite. Morty Manford. And I, I learned in your book that Morty Manford was one of the people uh, called in. I interviewed Morty at length for my book. Oh my gosh. And yep, we've done a, two episodes of a, a podcast with Morty. And um, don't tell anyone, but Morty was one of my favorites. Because mm. um, I get asked all the time, who's my favorite? But Morty was, was a favorite. Um, we didn't talk about New Orleans. We talked about a lot of things. So I had no idea until I read your book mm. that Morty was one of the people who was called in. Morty, um, with his mom, Jean Manford, co-founded PFLAG. Um, and Morty was, in his own right, um, a major activist in his early 20s Absolutely. in New York City. He was, um, so it just reminds me of sitting in a car with him outside of his house, talking, and I asked him in every way possible, without asking, if he uh, had AIDS. Mm. And it was one of those moments um, when you talk about asking the question that breaks someone, and I didn't, I couldn't do it. Mm. I, I, I knew because one of the questions that I asked, he got very teary, and I thought, I don't need to ask mm. more. Um, I would do it. I mean, that's just, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, that's, I'm bad that way. No, I, I, and I was in many situations where I did ask, but I just, I couldn't. Couldn't do it. And I only learned recently that he had just found out two weeks prior to the interview oh that he was gosh. HIV positive. Yeah, yeah. Um, but back to you. No, but um, following the upstairs lounge fire, so Morty Manford um, was actually staying with Morris Kite in New York. And Morty was just a kid. He was in his early twenties when he when mm -hmm. he came down to New Orleans. And then uh, Troy Perry, who was a famous um, gay activist minister, who was in Los in Los Angeles. Within hours of the fire, they. They all heard about the suffering that was going on in New Orleans and what was happening in terms of what they deemed to be official malfeasance. And then these leaders of gay liberation descended. They all flew the next morning to New Orleans to reconnoiter and to try to raise awareness about the event and try to get the bodies buried, all sorts of things like that. 
Um, but that was really, a, it's a unique instance in the history of gay liberation where national gay liberation becomes aware of a specific emergency in a locale where there is no natural leader and they attempt to fill the void. And it was, it was a, a brand new national movement. As we both know, the movement existed from 1950, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't truly national, mm. um, but became so um, uh, in, the two, in the three years following the Stonewall Uprising. Mm -hmm. So this was the first occasion then where, where, they, where the national movement arrived, like the cavalry. Right. I mean, it's easy to imagine in hearing about what New Orleans was like and reading about it, that they didn't know what to do that no one knew what to do. Police didn't know what to do. Journalists mm. didn't know what to do. The people involved didn't know what to do mm. um, because this was all unspoken. It couldn't be spoken. Sure, there was a great degree of shock for the people that had been grieving that for the people that had been involved and for the people that were not directly touched by the event, a huge degree of embarrassment and humiliation for the city that their entire, their, their closeted gay underworld had just been thrust into the limelight. Um, right at a, a pivotal time for the city where they were trying to pivot to um, tourism. They were trying to at attract the tourists and the business conventioneers who could, who could travel to New Orleans for consequences-free weekends mm -hmm. and, uh, and business trips. And here, not just that, here a bar burns down close to the French Quarter and kills 32 people. That's bad enough uh, PR for them. But then that bar had served homosexual clientele, which wasn't supposed to be there. That a gay bar wasn't supposed to exist in New Orleans. And then the men who had died in this bar were locals, reflective of, their, reflective of, um, of New Orleans' own society and their own culture. One last question before we turn to the audience. Um, was there anyone who you met who really didn't want you to write this book? Who retained those attitudes from, the 19, from 1973 about not airing the city's dirty laundry? No. We, oddly enough, no. I'm, I'm trying to think of a person who, even if they, I was told, I'm not going to give you an interview, um, I wasn't discouraged from writing the piece or from writing the book. Most everyone understood why I was doing what why I was doing. Even when I interviewed Moon Landrew, who had been the, the Democratic mayor of, of New Orleans in 1973, who perhaps um, in the context of his legacy, um, wishes that he addressed the fire uh, differently in the way that he did, where he was AWOL in 1973. Essentially, he showed no leadership um, with relation to the fire. Um, and it, that's controversial because he's the patriarch of a very famous, progressive, democratic family, where his son, his son Mitch, uh, is, quite, is quite famous, recently wrote a memoir, Mary Landrieu was a senator. I mean, in many ways, he's a very admired and admirable man who did a, a great deal for civil rights in New Orleans. But even Moon Landrieu um, understood why I was writing a book about the upstairs lounge fire, even though he wouldn't comment directly on, on it, except to say it was a tragedy. He would interview to have me talk about his civil rights record, though. So I interviewed him a great deal about his civil rights record. That's fascinating. Yeah. So for people, this is still very alive. Certainly. Yeah. I think, I think most New Orleanians understand that this event was so swept under the rug um, that it's necessary to continue interrogating what happened. And we're only finding out the centerpieces of the puzzle, this mysterious event, 45 years later. Sometimes it takes that long. Mm. Yeah. Questions from the audience? Yes. If this was an arson, uh, did the police or anyone find out who did it and how did they do it? Uh, isn't that a good question? It is a great um, it's question. It's a great question because it figures into the, into the story in a critical way. We were talking earlier before we came here about 
what a messy story this is. Mm, yeah, so um, it was an intentionally set fire. Um, there was a prime suspect that the police had interviewed and located and then lost due to carelessness. The prime suspect was an internally conflicted homosexual who was violently ejected from the bar minutes before the fire began. The gentleman's name was Roger Dale Nunez. Um, he was a man, he was a con man with a criminal record and a part-time hustler who was known around the CD strip that the upstairs lounge was located on called Iberville Street. Um, and that night, uh, prior to getting violently kicked out of the upstairs lounge, where actually he got clocked, he got punched by a guy, his jaw was broken, and then as he was being dragged for, out of the upstairs lounge, he screams, I'm gonna burn you all out. It's heard by two different people in a very loud bar. Um, he was eventually located by the police, um, and then a very strange thing happens when, when Roger Dale Nunez is located by the New Orleans Police Department. A week later, they find him in, in an apartment three doors down from the upstairs lounge. He'd been there the entire time. Um, the police determined that Roger Dale Nunez uh, needs immediate medical assistance because his jaw is broken, and then they bring him to Charity Hospital where he receives jaw surgery. Um, and then is left there without police guard. Um, after, the, after Roger Dale Nunez recovers, uh, he calls his mama uh, in Abbeville, Louisiana, which is a town about 150 miles um, west of New Orleans. And his mother comes and picks him up, and he just absconds from the city, even though they want to interview him. And then the police claim to be unable to locate him for months on months when he's in the most obvious place you could find him, his mother's house. What happened to him? He uh, eventually travels back, comes back to New Orleans, re-engages in a life of crime and thievery, uh, cons a woman twice his age uh, who is financially independent into marrying him. And after, they've, after their marriage, after the documents are signed, um, he tells her on their wedding night that he's homosexual, but that doesn't matter because he's also impotent. Um, <laughs> That's his excuse. And then um, she, as opposed to seeking an annulment, for some, for some reason he convinces her that he, needs, he, he should be able to live in her backyard trailer for a span of months while he sorts out what he's going to do for his next step. Um, then he begins to steal from her, passing bad checks in her name. And then in November 1974, he eventually dies by suicide. He consumes barbiturates and then uh, drinks six, six cans of generic beer. Um, and that complicates an ongoing investigation. Um, even though the police department had given up its investigation about several months before, there was a state agency that called the Louisiana State Fire Marshal that's authorized to um, investigate arson crimes specifically. And um, they were still trying to pursue Roger Dale Nunez up into 1974. But unfortunately, his death complicated matters because the justice system isn't designed to try the accused post-mortem. So he dies uh, by himself, alone, in a trailer. Next question. So earlier you mentioned that there were things you wish you included in the book. Um, can you give examples? I think that you could have included because... That I could have included, but that came too late. Um, or even things that you might have included, but you just can't put everything in a book. Sure, I can't... Um, it has to do with something... I'm going to pay it forward when the next upstairs lounge historian approaches me to want to write a book. Um, and that the, the fact, this, this arena that I, I, I know something interesting has happened, but I can't fully prove it because I can't get access to medical records. 
is that Roger Dale Nunez, um, the suspected arsonist, spent time at state mental hospitals prior to his first move to New Orleans. And then also after the fire, he was in a state mental hospital. Um, I think, and I don't know this, I'm, but I think that some, this was an era when individuals who, um, who declared themselves to be gay to psychiatrists and psychologists would oftentimes receive radical therapies um, that perhaps might do damage to a brain. Um, and so that's something that I could not fully, um, that's something that I can't fully document in terms of Roger Dale Nunez receiving this, these therapies and specifically what happened to his brain and whatnot. Um, but I think that there's, my reportorial spidey sense tells me that something occurred um, in these state mental hospitals that may have met, possibly may have made him uh, or contributed to his being deranged. Um, on the night of June 24th, 1973, when he was kicked out of the bar. So that's one example. Next question. To build a little bit off that answer, um, you know, archives. So you've told us some good stories about your experiences interviewing. Right. Any interesting stories about um, archives or research destinations you went to? Oh, it's so nerdy. You want to hear my archival stories? Right. Absolutely. So, you're, you're in a room full of people yeah. interested I mean, you're, in that. So archival research is being a library mole man and not getting enough sun for like weeks at a time. And then all of a sudden, you discover the, like, the one little golden nugget. Um, so I was able to find um, in archives, um, it was actually the first and most obvious archive, which was called City Archive of the New Orleans Public Library. That's where the, poli the police report of the upstairs lounge fire is, all the major documentation that journalists and anyone who's ever written a book or documentary go to at first. Um, but nobody goes into the microfiche, obviously, um, except me, because I'm weird. So um, delving into the microfiche of, the, uh, of City Archives, I was able to find and substantiate just what the heck the mayor of New Orleans was doing when he was claimed to be out of town during and after the upstairs lounge fire, which was he was in Europe touring pleasure gardens <laughs> with his wife and also a member of the press, a, a gentleman named Charles Ferguson and his wife, under the auspices that they were looking to glean information for, for a formational public works project called the Louis Armstrong Memorial Park, which actually did get made in New Orleans. Um, so during and after the span of up, the upstairs lounge fire, um, Mayor Landrieu and his close friend, Charles Ferguson, were in Europe, um, in Copenhagen, specifically at the Royal Kong Hotel, um, enjoying the Tivoli Pleasure Gardens. Um, and that was fascinating find for me to f find the documentation to find the, 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 the itinerary, to find the facts from after the upstairs lounge fire from New Orleans to Germany, where, where he's, they're faxing the information to Charles Ferguson. Um, that blew my mind. I loved that so much. So that was, that was one example where um, I didn't expect to ever be able to substantiate what he was doing. Um, but that was only because that was in microfiche. Intent, well, sorry, I shouldn't call it intentionally. That was in misfiled microfiche at City Archives. Time for two more questions. Yes, was the bartender manager of the bar mm -hmm. responsible for saving many lives? And what became of that gentleman? His, his name is Douglas. He was called Buddy Rasmussen was his nickname. Um, and uh, Buddy Rasmussen kept his cool on the night of the upstairs lounge fire. He had, 
previously spent time in the Navy and the Air Force. When uh, the flames first erupted into the room through the front door, um, he uh, and the lights all of a sudden went pitch went went out almost immediately. The electric electricity shorted, and then smoke filled the room and incited what's called smoke blindness, where you're almost claustrophobic in a place where everyone's inebriated from almost two hours of bottomless draft beer, which was the drink special that night. Buddy Rasmussen kept his cool. He flicked on a flashlight, and he, he started grabbing people and said, follow me, follow me, follow me. And he guided them all out um, to a third, and essentially through, through the back door, through the back emergency exit. And he saved about 30 to 35 people's lives. Um, and uh, unfortunately, a life that he was not able to save that night was the life of his lover, Adam Fontana, who he didn't see was sitting um, at the bar next to him. And after he'd grabbed Adam and told him to come with me, that Adam had, had been too inebriated to know what was happening, and Adam had not stood up. So Buddy made it outside the bar and was on the street and looking into the bar when he first saw that Adam was burning to death. Um, essentially was a charred corpse of himself in his place at the bar and that he hadn't moved at all. Um, and Buddy Rasmussen for years, um, I think, I, I don't, it's not even an I think, for years um, struggled with the pain of having saved all those lives but believing he sh that he could or should have saved more including the life of his lover Adam. And uh, for years, Buddy was able to talk about the fire. He was one of the most incredible interviews I've heard that you could ever get, because he was the fulcrum and the heart and the center point of upstairs lounge bar culture. He knew everybody's name. He knew all the side stories. And um, around the 25th anniversary of the fire, um, so it was 1998, um, he found himself just unable to keep telling the story. And so since then, he's, he's rejected any interviewer that's come forward, um, including when ABC News, when they were recently doing their documentary on the Upstairs Lounge Fire, they sought out Buddy Rasmussen. And in, including me, I sought him out as well. Um, he didn't speak with you then? Mm -mm, absolutely not, no. But he'd already given his full account um, to police, to the state fire marshal, to several other different journalists. Obviously, I would have loved to speak to him. Any, anyone would have. Um, but this is just an example of, uh, I mean, an, an individual can only relive this traumatic event so much uh, before I believe uh, w there's no catharsis and before it starts to do ongoing psychological damage. Um, and so he, I, I believe he just cannot talk about the fire anymore. So I'm going to take the final question, if you don't mind. Um, and I always hate being asked this, so I'm going to ask you, what's next? Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, you said I should, you know, it's important to ask the question that, that, that the, the person you're interviewing doesn't want to hear. Um, yeah, so I, what's I mean, I think I have an ongoing responsibility to bring the upstairs lounge store to as large a group of people as possible. Uh, and so I'm probably going to stay focused on this probably for the next year or so, um, almost exclusively. I have a second book project I want to do which is about um, northern segregation um, and essentially the, uh, the way that northern segregation in the Midwest suburbs. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story about my own hometown um, and the way that nice middle-class suburban whites um, resisted integration up until the passing of the Fair Housing Ordinance, ordinance in 1968. 
Um, that's something I'm very fascinated in. The whole other story of how segregation worked north of the Mason-Dixon line. I look forward to reading it. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you, Robert, for being here tonight. That was Eric Marcus talking to Robert Fiesler. Robert's book is Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. You can get it on the shelves at New York Public Library branches and on our app, Simply E. And of course, if you don't live in the New York area, go show your local public library some love and get it there. Thanks for listening to Library Talks. Don't forget that the show is now coming out on Sunday, not Tuesday. It's arguably two days earlier or five days later, depending on which way you do the math. And please share the show with your friends or rate and review us on iTunes. On next week's show, novelist Min Jin Lee and fashion man extraordinaire Tim Gunn. Library Talks is produced by Skylar Swenson with editorial support from Riker Schnorr and myself. Our new theme music is composed by Allison Leighton-Brown. Thanks for listening.